From WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. A listener wrote to us recently in response to an episode featuring two professional local stand-up comedians. I heard your upcoming show is about the local comedy scene, he says. I don't want to be misleading and say the scene here is bad, but the diversity, equity, and inclusion leaves much to be desired. The art of stand-up comedy in its current form is like jazz in that it is a black American invention. Yet, laments this listener, you don't see many local black American comedians in the local club's rotations. That's the first I'd heard that stand-up might have emerged from the African American community, so I reached out to a historian and scholar, an Americanist, a specialist in culture and history at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill with the question. And that led to a host of questions about, yes, the history, but also the explosive popularity, the evolution, and the new ethics of stand-up comedy in 21st century American culture. Dr. Michelle Robinson of UNC's Department of American Studies teaches a popular class entitled Ethics in Comedy, which has seen guest teachers as recognizable as comedian Lewis Black and Saturday Night Live co-head writer Brian Tucker. She joins us now from the Friday Center on the UNC campus. Professor Robinson, welcome to Coastline. Thank you very much for having me. It's so good to have you with us today. Now, as a, a historian, is it true as this one listener has suggested, that African-American culture was was really the origin of what we think of as stand-up comedy today. I think there's no question but that African-American culture and black vernacular culture with its kind of folk trickster characters is an essential thread of what we see as stand-up today. But there's a lot more going on and a lot of contributors that include white working class um, performers as well as Jewish American immigrants and a host of other people who have contributed to the ways that stand-up comedy has developed and the way that we see it today. Can you help us understand what some early stand-up comedy might have looked like? I mean, I've seen references to minstrel shows before even the end of the Civil War. Is, is that as far back as it goes, or does it go even earlier? I think a good place to situate the origins of stand-up comedy is that pre-Civil War era and in antebellum America, there, were, uh, the, there was an emergence of blackface minstrelsy that took a couple different directions. Some of it was um, more degrading. That's the emergence of Sambo-like figures but the character known as Jim Crow was pioneered by a performer named uh, T.D. Rice. And that's been written about wildly by um, many scholars in American studies and in cultural history. Um, and this character, Jim Crow, was a trickster, um, did embody a lot of traits of black vernacular culture um, and joking ways and uh, really was uh, connected to this fascination with and desire to embody black culture. Um, but in certain ways, it also deformed black culture. So I don't want to pretend that it's uh, a really a celebration. 
of black America. Nevertheless, those are some of the inspirations for the comic ways of being that we understand as stand-up. Well, help us understand the Jim Crow character, because many of our listeners will have heard about Jim Crow laws and the Jim Crow era, which essentially meant um, uh, an attempt through the judicial system and um, through the legislature to uh, tamp back down any kind of equality among the races. And, you know, we, we... think of Jim Crow, the Jim Crow era, as a, as something that we're still, in some ways, struggling to put behind us fully. So did this Jim Crow, you said he was a trickster, mm-hmm. was this a character that was, um, that was denigrating to the black community? Or w- what were, I mean, I, I know you can't tell the Jim Crow jokes, but, but where was the humor based, I guess? So I want to distinguish between the kind of powerful um, laws from Jim Crow laws from the 20th century and the late 19th century that were about the segregation of African Americans um, and point to the scholarship on Jim Crow from the 19th century and the antebellum period, which really was about exploring cross-racial energy and working class lives and bringing together this black vernacular culture um, and the experiences of white working class Americans and putting them into play with one another. Um, so on the one hand, uh, performers like T.D. Rice put black vernacular culture on the stage, but it was something that was appreciated and enjoyed by white working class people uh, as well. So that kind of um, trickster comic energy that was about um, kind of working class and black experience um, found a different form in the deseg- in kind of a desegregated form that distinguishes it from what we know of as Jim Crow laws that are about the separation of black and white in the 20th century. Right. Now, there's also a really important history of Jewish humor in the evolution of American stand-up comedy. How does Jewish humor come into play here? Well, this is in- incredibly interesting. Um, A lot of individuals who went into early stand-up or things that we might see as uh, precedents to early stand-up were part of this minstrel tradition, this tradition of blackface minstrelsy. And one of them was a man named Tony Pastor, who uh, was a Jewish American who did have a bit of a a start in blackface song and dance um, and ended up being perceived as, like after his clown days, um, as the father of American vaudeville. Um, and so he's seen as another person who's kind of contributed to early American stand-up. Um, and you do have waves of um, immigrants from Eastern Europe and elsewhere who are bringing their own comic traditions uh, into the mix in the vaudeville uh, theater in the late 19th century, early 20th century, where you have MCs who are basically guiding between multiple acts, and they come on in between acts and tell jokes to the audience. So that's one iteration of stand-up, where that personal relationship develops between the master of ceremonies uh, and the people in the audience. Now, you've said to me that Dick Gregory the late Dick Gregory, um, some people might consider him one of the one of the fathers of American stand-up comedy as well. Uh, 
he came to prominence in, would it have been the late 1950s and early 1960s? That's right. And so he still is part of the Jewish history of stand-up comedy, even though he was an African-American stand-up comic. How does that work? Uh, I don't know if you'd call Dick Gregory as part of, you know, like an earlier generation. He's uh, an unusual black American comic because he's one of the the part of the generation that didn't have to, you know, travel in the Chitlin circuit, finding an audience that way. Instead, he um, kind of came to prominence playing in Chicago clubs, um, delivering performances, The Hungry Eye, where a lot of famous Jewish American comedians also performed, like Mort Saul, who really transformed political comedy, um, and Lenny Bruce also in the 1960s. So there were a number of comedians who were circulating in different venues, and Dick Gregory was one who uh, originated a really different kind of um, political comedy that we're familiar with now. Um, Two, a broad audience, often uh, a white audience as well as a black audience. Yeah. We do have a clip of Dick Gregory that we'll get to in the next segment. But can you just talk a little bit about some of the barriers that would have existed for someone like Dick Gregory at the time? I mean, I think it's easy to sort of look back and and uh, see that racial barrier. But how would someone like Dick Gregory have taken such a strong position on the national stage in in this kind of a medium at the time? Well, before he performed before white audiences, Dick Gregory was um, kind of building himself up as a comedian at black clubs in the Chicago area. And there's a famous story about uh, an opportunity for him to perform at the Playboy Club um, in Chicago in 1961. And that's where he performs to an entirely white audience and introduces jokes that are related to the black experience and particularly in the South. Um, and Dick Gregory is invested uh, in civil civil rights and the civil rights movement from early on in his career. Um, so he really has an opportunity to turn his comedy in a different direction, which he chooses to do and ultimately impacted what he was able to do as a comedian and what he chose to do with his career. He started missing gigs because he was busy marching. Um, He told jokes that were perceived as uh, a little bit too political for, um, you know, amusement shows or talk shows. He was somebody who had a definitive political vision and wanted to bring it to his comedy. And there's an incredible album he has. I'm not sure if that's where this clip is coming from, um, from 1962. It's called Talking Turkey. And uh, it's a fabulous album because Talking Turkey is to give straight talk, to speak about how things really are. And the idea that you can use comedy, and that's the venue or the expressive form where you can talk the most clearly, say most honestly what is happening in the world, Uh, is just um, an incredible testament to the power of stand-up comedy in American life. You might also say Talking Turkey uh, is about Thanksgiving and whether or not we can come together. (laughs) So multiple, multiple layers there. You're listening to Coastline. We're learning about the history of stand-up comedy in the United States and why 
perhaps it's a culturally transcendent medium in some ways. We have UNC cultural historian and Professor Michelle Robinson. After this short break, we'll hear a little bit from Dick Gregory and take a closer look at ethics in comedy and what that really means today. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. to Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Stand-up comedy is evolving along with public expectations about what it can be. Today, we're taking a closer look at its history, what it is today, and perhaps how social psychology can help us understand it more deeply. Dr. Michelle Robinson is an Americanist in UNC's Department of American Studies, and one of her areas of expertise is stand-up comedy. And Dr. Robinson, just before we went to break, you were helping us understand kind of how Dick Gregory came up in the mid-20th century and perhaps why some of his comedy was such an important part of the American stand-up comedy scene at the time. And you had actually mentioned to me a book called Uproarious by Cynthia and Julie Willette. And one of the things that they write is, if reason as a persuasive tool is at best only indirectly effective, a weak tool on its own, might not the sting of ridicule or the contagion of joyous laughter prove to be more effective weapons for social change? And that, of course, made me think of Dick Gregory as he stands in front of a white audience and delivers uh, some pretty incisive and funny commentary. I absolutely agree. He has this incredible challenge, which is um, to speak from the margins, to speak as an outsider to a really broad audience um, and try and have them pay attention to the experience of black Americans in the mid-century. And he's coming from you know, a tradition of, we'll say, political comedy as expressed by Will Rogers, the Cherokee com- comedian, or by Moms Mabley, who traveled on the Chitlin circuit with this larger-than-life persona and had to kind of use that persona to sneak in uh, really great cultural critiques and social critiques, as well as someone like Mort Saul, who performed in San Francisco with a newspaper in front of him. And all of them are adopting these different styles on radio, in the clubs, on the Chitlin circuit, to sneak in um, or kind of transform the way we think um, about politics, not by speaking directly, but by using comedy to generate uh, laughter and attention and understanding. Yeah, so we'll listen to this clip of Dick Gregory. It's it's actually two clips edited together. The first is uh, from the early 1960s, could even be the late 50s. I wasn't able to verify that. So, but it's some of his early stuff. And then we'll segue into a performance he gave in 2015 as part of a Lewis Black and Friends program. And, of course, he died in 2017. But let's listen. You see, 20 years ago, the light-complected Negro had it made. Now it's the dark-complected Negro simply because of the government contracts. 
In order for big business to get government contracts, they have to hire Negro and white on an equal basis. And these cats go out and get the blackest cat they can find. <laughs> so when that government inspector walk in there, he can see him seven blocks away. <laughs> oh, you got one. Huh? And I'm extra happy today because we just finished in the last day of Black History Month. History month. And a lot of people say, oh, are we making progress? You know. But for you young folks in the house, it used to be called Negro History Week. <laughs> now we're going from a week to a month. But you know, when they got ready to give us a month, it'd be that month of February and all them damn days missing, right? <laughs> In February, do it bother you white folks that February the second is Groundhog Day? They ask yourself, what's a groundhog? If the groundhog sees his shadow, what does it? Six more weeks of winter? Can you believe you white folks can be that silly? <laughs> With all them cameras out, when it comes out the ground. That thing couldn't help but see the damn shadow. <laughs> and if the groundhog sees a shadow, six more weeks of winter. And to think, I want to go to school with y'all. <laughs> when you get home, take out your calendar. Spring is March the 21st. Count from February the 2nd to March 21st. That is six weeks. The late Dick Gregory from a Lewis Black and Friends program from 2015. Professor Robinson, that wasn't so long ago, uh, a few years ago. Today, we know there's a broader range of gender, sexual orientation, ethnicity, cultural background represented in the, in the genre of stand-up comedy. But there are still many people who would say that it, it's still dominated by white, straight men. How, how, how do you think stand-up comedy is doing on the DEI front today? Listening to that clip, which I think maybe is from... In 1961, maybe from the album Living in Black and White, and you get that kind of caustic, good humor, but also absolutely acerbic take on white and black culture and the black experience, um, reminded me of a recent uh, monologue that Bill Burr did for Saturday Night, Saturday Night Live, where he brought up almost an identical joke about the length of Black History Month. So there's complicated things going on. Um, I would say, on the one hand, we have um, a number of white male comedians who are really addressing and interested in thinking about race relations and our culture in sophisticated ways. But on the other hand, there are a lot of white male comedians who are getting million-dollar, and if not million-dollar, sizable um, contracts to produce stand-up specials that don't uh, offer a, 
experience that a lot of other comedians might offer if they're people of color, if they're women, if they're gender non-binary. We're not always getting the full picture of perspectives that are out there. Right. And that actually leads me to Rose Matafeo. She's a modern-day New Zealand comedian. You tell me she's living in London and doing a show called Starstruck. That's right. And so you introduced me to her. And let's listen to this clip first, and then we can kind of talk about what she's doing and and who she is. But the clip we're about to hear is from her HBO special, Horndog. I've got a lot of straight male friends, yeah? Because I am an ally. (laughs) So we got obsessed with Love Island in our household. And what we did was we figured out our love statistics of our lifetime. So I figured out, people, I figured out from the beginning, all the way from zero, all the way to the end. Now, I had kissed nine uh, people in my entire life, and I thought that was actually an entirely average amount until I asked one other person, okay? (laughs) Turns out it's pretty low, right? Especially considering the fact that I have literally never rejected anyone in my life, right? (laughs) I run a very open home policy when it comes to that sort of stuff. No one enters, enters all fives, right? It's crazy. I've kissed nine, kissed nine men in my life, right? And I honestly think that subconsciously there, I am holding out at single digits with men, um, because I think once I hit double digits, it does mean that I am definitely straight and I'm not ready for that. Um, <laughs> not my future, not my president, yeah? That's um, a horrible thing to sign up for, right? Because it, it's, the, it's the worst, um, it's the worst of all of them. <laughs> if that makes sense, right? It's the worst sexuality gender combination. I, I know it's very unpeasy to rank them, right? <laughs> but it is at the bottom. It's, it's worse than being a straight man if you actually think about it, right? Yeah, I said it. <laughs> but what it means is that given all of the options in the world for any sexual partner we desire, we still went with dudes. Like, what is going on? Like, what kind of poor decision-making skills does that reflect upon our community, especially at a time like this? Holy shit. Rose Matafeo from her HBO special, Horndog. Professor Michelle Robinson, what is she doing? There are some people that will just hear one of the top levels of what she just did, which is a female comedian talking about her sex life and and putting it out there. And there are some people that are saying now, why, why do women have to keep doing it? It's like they're trying to keep up with the men they're trying to show that they can be as crude and not be offend, not get offended themselves and take the hits. How do you hear that? Well, what Ma- uh, Rose Matafeo doing, I think, is just, you know, uh, as you know, I'm a huge fan. And I think she's kind of sly and, you know, speaks out of both sides of her mouth and has an incredible kind of emotional force. It's a personality all of her own. And I think that kind of arguments about you know, the topics people are discussing and whether you need to get into your sex life or not. You know, what 
what comedy really is about for me is that kind of expressive personality and the way of shaping that content, which makes people really memorable. And there are a lot of male and female comedians who might talk only about their sex lives, and they're not memorable um, because they do it in cliched ways. But I think when I listen to Rose Matafeo uh, talking about the worst identity as being a white woman who cho <laughs> chooses a man, a white man, a straight white man, um, she's really kind of getting into the nitty-gritty in terms of how we think about relationships and what sexuality starts meaning for us today, um, particularly when our sex lives and our choice of partners seem so connected to politics and hierarchy, and we're starting to recognize that. And Gerard Carmichael actually has included his sexuality, his orientation, as uh, an important part of, of his comedic platform, if, if you will. Why don't we go ahead and just take a listen to Gerard Carmichael's bit uh, where he does talk about coming out as gay late in life. There's a thing, I came out too late, like a little too late. I was like 30. That, it gets better for the kids. Like, that's not for an adult man figuring himself out. Like, they don't want that. Nobody wants that shit. All my friends felt like I was just duplicitous. Like, I was just lying to them. They, they didn't know who I was. They all reacted like Sally Field and Mrs. Doubtfire. They were like, the whole time? Like, they were very... about that shit. It cleared up my relationship with all my black homegirls. My friend Ashley told me before I came out, she, she could sense it. She was like, please just tell me you're gay so this all makes sense. <laughs> I guess it's like only so many times you can like FaceTime a woman to see if your outfit looks okay. <laughs> Well, they start having some questions. And and the they they, they were the toughest, I, I'll say like black women were the toughest people to come out to, uh, but also the most supportive. Uh, I, I'm very, very thankful for all of the uh, the black ladies in my life, you know, who supported me through that. Through all of it. All of it. They're not they're not homophobic at all. They're racist as a they don't like that I had a white boyfriend. Oh my, see? You see what I'm saying? You see that chain? You can be gay, but what? Oh, you date white boys? Really? Is that a shock? Surprise, surprise. No more secrets. I'm going to tell y'all. Yeah, yeah, yes. What? She feels... You heard her say, wow, that's the sound of a black woman that feels doubly betrayed. Comedian Gerard Carmichael. Professor Robinson, Gerard Carmichael is, is one of the comedians that you find particularly intriguing. What's so different about his style that works for you? Oh, it's such an interesting contrast with the last clip that you showed. I mean, in many ways, Matafeo and and uh, Drug Carmichael are doing something similar, but it sounds so different. And the clip you just played from Rothaniel, that um, audience and the way that audience was kind of working with him and addressing what they thought um, about his experience coming out to his, you know, to his friends, um, including his uh, black women friends or his homegirls. Uh, that was that was just like a kind of a wonderful way that 
call and response element, um, their own participation in developing the narrative and kind of directing where he would go and what he'd say about it. I love that. Um, crowd work, but he's still getting at this issue, you know, how race, how gender, how sexuality all kind of play an intertwined role in our life and our experience and what it means to start telling people about these intimate details of your life. Yeah. And I have come at this a a couple of different ways. And so forgive me if you find this kind of irrelevant in, in, um, the sense of a, as a cultural historian. But when we look at stand-up comedy today, we do see a lot of representation across all kinds of um, lines, cultural lines, ethnic lines, uh, even age. But a lot of people would say that the genre is still dominated by, by white straight men. Is that true? Or are we just stuck in Netflix algorithms? What's happening with comedy that way? Oh, I do think a lot of Netflix algorithms and podcast algorithms are sending us to um, down a path where we might not see a lot of people who really are different and distinct, not only in terms of their identities, but their comic styles as well. So it's absolutely possible that someone who watches, say, Shane Gillis and then Bill Burr and then Ricky Gervais may never watch a comedian um, like Gerard Carmichael because they just won't appear on their feed. Um, And on the one hand, um, it's true that I think that there are a lot of white male comedians out there who get a lot of press. Um, On the other hand, there is a real democratization of comedy in terms of venues where people can post their work. So, you know, we have lots of great clips of Josh Johnson on YouTube or Comedy Central Productions or HBO, um, as well as um, Netflix, seen as a kind of predominant mode, but also shorter clips on TikTok and elsewhere. So some of these great comedians aren't getting the venues or opportunities, but they are out there performing their work. Which is, in some ways, the democratization of stand-up comedy that you've talked about, the democratization of people being able to self-publish and self-publicize. So how is that giving a platform? I mean, are people able to break through on these do-it-yourself kinds of platforms? Or are you only really successful these days when you get that Netflix special? I think it's easy to be uh, to gain that audience once Netflix put you, puts you out there and I'm sure that you know moving from um, us you know an open mic to Netflix is incredibly arduous um, for any comedian I don't I don't think that just the democratization of or self-publishing of comedy um, gives us access to all those voices. I do think Netflix is an incredible tastemaker, HBO also. But we are seeing these places where we get um, a glimpse of folks like Gerard Carmichael or Rose Matafeo, both who have specials um, on HBO. And there are people who are curating stand-up comedy to make sure we get some really excellent stuff from folks who are not white men. Right. And we're going to go to break in a minute, so I'm just warning you. But... Why do you think stand-up comedy is so explosively popular right now and it and its popularity only seems to be growing? Is that an easy answer or not? 
<laughs> I mean, we may have hit peak stand-up comedy at this point. One of the reasons that I think it is so popular is because it's inexpensive for companies to produce, which makes it ideal um, as uh, a Netflix product. Um, on the other hand, I think that folks are really becoming interested in following in the footsteps of these fabulous entertainers. So people who came up in the last generation and are still strong, like Dave Chappelle, like Chris Rock, like Bill Burr, like Margaret Cho, and they've generated an incredible new set of comedians. You're listening to Coastline. It's a look at stand-up comedy in the United States, how it's evolving and why the public's appetite for this art form continues to grow. After this short break... A look at ethics in comedy with UNC professor Michelle Robinson. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Stand up comedy is having a moment. Each week, streaming services drop new comedy specials feeding America's voracious appetite for people who will make us laugh. Dr. Michelle Robinson studies stand up comedy using an interdisciplinary approach. She is an Americanist in UNC's Department of American Studies and is joining us from the Friday Center on the UNC campus. And Dr. Robinson, Hassan Minhaj. <laughs> has been facing a torrent of public criticism. And before we get into some of the nuances of that criticism and, and just why his comedy has been so controversial, can you give us the thumbnail sketch as to what he did that people are upset about? Well, Menashe's most recent special, a Netflix special, um, titled The King's Gesture, uh, represented situations when he was a young man and discriminated against in really um, frightening ways because he was a Muslim American. Um, it was found out uh, afterwards, or it was disclosed that some of those experiences, while they did happen to people he knew or were actually pretty common, didn't happen to him um, didn't actually happen to the comedian himself. And there were other uh, places in the special where he exaggerated experiences that he and his family had, and people felt betrayed that that wasn't um, an actual facsimile of his life that he presented on the stage. Right. And when I first heard about this, before I started diving into it a little more, I thought, well, it, it's it's art. I mean, he's not he's not pledging to tell the truth and nothing but the truth. He's he's entertaining. And then I read this New York Times piece uh, 
that is in part, quote, when I first heard that The New Yorker had published an expose on the veracity of the stand-up comedy of Hassan Minhaj, I rolled my eyes. We're fact-checking jokes now? Come on. Comedy is an art, not an op-ed. And honesty has always struck me as the most overrated virtue in comedy, end quote. But then, and this New York Times columnist goes on to talk about that that expose, uh, what the, the New York Times is basically saying lying in comedy isn't necessarily wrong, but the way you lie <laughs> matters, right? Mm-hmm. Professor Robinson, there are comics through the years that we know have been telling tall tales, and we accept that and we laugh. What, what has changed for this comedian in this particular space? I think there are you know a lot of comedians who in the past and even today you know have comic scenarios that they present as their own life, but they're sufficiently hyperbolic or, you know, they're fantastic. We would never confuse them with reality. And if we did, it probably wouldn't matter. Um, But the stakes in Menage's special are much higher. Um, And I've been thinking about this a lot. I I actually think I'm on his team. Um, And I would say there's kind of two things at play. And one is, of course, that he has this reputation as a newsman from you know, being a correspondent on The Daily Show and then having his own show on Netflix that was uh, also, you know, very humorous but delved into important issues. It was called Patriot Patriot Act, and they did shows that were on things like the affirmative action debate and the eviction crisis and really broke down those issues. Um, So people thought of him as a newsman and maybe expected him to really provide an honest take on American life for that reason. But I think what else is in play, or another really important element in play, is this acute scrutiny of Muslim American experience, which happened even before, but definitely after um, and since September 11th, where stand-up comedians um, kind of came out, people like Dino Badala, people uh, who like uh, Negan Farsad, who you know started their own comedy tours, and came out and took on the task of you know rectifying these dangerous stereotypes of Muslim Americans speaking out against prejudice and violence, you know, being representatives of Muslim Americans in the public sphere. And I think that's an unfair burden that they had to carry. But it's spilled over into what's happening today, where there is an expectation uh, for Minaj as a Muslim American, as someone who's talking about these vital political issues and the way they engage with his or intersect with his own life. he has to tell the truth or uh, it redounds upon everyone uh, whose who's, uh, experience as Muslim American relies on him as someone who communicates that experience to the world. So his, his burden, his social burden, I guess. Yes, that's what I think. Is heavier than mm-hmm. it would have been years ago. So it, So it sounds like truth is becoming a new demand from the public in this particular art form because people are thinking of it as, in a way, part journalism and truth-telling. Well, in the case of Hassan Minaj, I think that's definitely the case. He, you know, he was expected to be a truth-teller, to have that kind of journalistic integrity. 
that's not something that all comedians have to experience. I do think, though, there's a broader sense that comedians do give us unfiltered access to their lives, that there can't be anything contrived about their performance, um, and that we have, I mean, it's like the ultimate parasocial relation, that we, our affinity for comedians is predicate on this idea that we can see everything or know them really well based on what they perform, even after we've only seen them on stage. Yeah. Now, you teach a class called Ethics and Comedy, and Mm -hmm. you have all kinds of high-profile people who work in the business coming through and talking to your class. Louis Black is, is one of the notable folks who is an alum of UNC, and you've you've had him in in your class what are some of the big takeaways from his visits what does lewis black teach about ethics oh wow um i you know the disclaimer is i don't have a celebrity filled classroom sometimes we're lucky enough to have these amazing guests like lewis black who is an alum of unc and whose papers were donated to the special collections library here he spoke a length about his experiences touring and coming up with um, comedy. He started off uh, as a playwright, but found ways of accessing audiences and, and speaking about the things he wanted to through comedy that he couldn't just just with his play, um, the plays that he'd written. Um, and one of the things that was most fascinating um, that we learned from him was the possibility of uh, of going to places where audiences might have felt politics you know, was really contentious. Politics was something you didn't speak about. An audience that even had kind of hostility towards him um, because they held different political beliefs. But then he would have a joke or two that really kind of were water cooler jokes that would be the takeaways. It wouldn't be that hostility. But the memorable jokes that people enjoyed together, to kind of go back to the Willettes, right, that got, got folks on board um, and allowed them to have an incredible experience. Yeah. Now, you've raised a few ethical issues in the world of stand-up comedy yourself. Um, You said to me that there is a misguided cancel culture conversation. And I think that falls under ethics for a lot of reasons, (laughs) but also other other areas. But um, talk to me about what makes a cancel culture conversation in the world of stand-up comedy misguided. Oh, wow. So I think this idea of cancel culture is just thrown around um, all the time and used in so many ways. It's just become conceptually useless for us to think about particular situations and the power dynamics that are in play. Um, I think I uh, mentioned to you, I thought a lot of the arguments about cancel culture that we're having and, you know, and we've had in the past couple of years really um, resonate or seem to echo some of the conversations about rape jokes and who can tell them um, from a decade ago um, when people like Jim Norton and Lindy West were getting up in arms and debating about these issues. And I think what's at stake in cancel culture a lot of the time, and as was uh, in conversations about rape jokes, is this claim that people who are not powerful some have, somehow um, are entitled to determine or somehow have the power to censor us. It's like a very specious claim um, that underlies accusations of being canceled a lot of the time. When people in power, um, comedians who have a lot of recognition, celebrity, wealth, respect, um, and long-standing careers, 
um, make the case that someone or a group or an individual, usually a marginalized group, is controlling what they say or trying to control their voices. And there's this other question behind it. You know, can't audiences be the arbiters of what good comedy is? Um, or is it the comedian who somehow knows better than them all of the time? Who's an example of someone who's been whining about being canceled that you think is just, well, specious, <laughs> as you put it? <laughs> oh, gosh. And I mean, there's a lot of, of folks who who talk about it and even kind of invite it in their specials now, um, prefacing their specials with these ideas that they will get canceled. And you do hear people like Ricky Gervais or Jimmy Carr um, making jokes about the fact that they can't say or that they're so daring and so pushing the envelope because people will cancel them, you know, as if it's a kind of aspirational uh, event. Um, so, yeah, so those would be a, a couple of examples where, you know, it's their way of branding themselves as as edgy. Um, and then we see people like um, Dave Chappelle, even, who talks, uh, about, has a kind of persecution complex when it comes to cancel culture, um, as if there are populations or groups who are out there trying to bring him down, and he doesn't have a multi-million dollar contract with Netflix. And Kathy Griffin, she oh, actually, yeah. mm-hmm. was she a victim of cancel culture? Or when she held up a, a representation of the severed head of Donald Trump, which which was pretty shocking. How did that affect her career? And was it appropriate? Or where does that fall in the ethics discussion? Actually, this was one of the things Lewis Black spoke about when he, he came to talk to my class. Um, and he was very much, um, you know, someone who understood Kathy Griffin as a person who experienced um, canceling or was on, you know, the end of that kind of critique that really affected her career um, and made her briefly a pariah on the scene in the United States. Um, And she really had to tour around. I think she went to Australia and elsewhere um, so that she could continue to practice as as a comedian. Um, So that's kind of maybe a case study where you see these tangible effects um, and people... you know, closing down voices in comedy because they're perceived as too aggressive, as too problematic, um, and in her case, uh, somehow deeply unpatriotic. Right. Now, continuing with these questions of ethics, Margaret Cho is a triple threat, maybe not by the traditional definition. I don't know if she dances, but she's a well-known comedian. She, I think she does belly dance. Oh, well, there <laughs> you go. So she's at least a quadruple threat, probably more at this point. So she's a she's a comedian. She's an Emmy-nominated actor, Grammy-nominated singer-songwriter. And we have a clip of her talking about her copious tattoos and how that plays in the Korean-American community. So let's listen. It was always very hard to, to get any kind of acceptance within the Korean community for me. And then as I got older, too, because I also I'm very different. I have a lot of tattoos, a lot, which is very controversial in Korean culture. You have them. I have a lot. And uh, so uh, Koreans are very uh, they're, they're really against tattoos. It's very taboo for Koreans to have tattoos because during the Korean War, it, everything was destroyed and then rebuilt by organized crime. And the way that the organized criminals recognized each other was through their tattoos. So it's real controversial. And so I go to the 
clothing optional Korean spas in Los Angeles, which are not just clothing optional, everybody's just naked. You know, everybody's naked and I'm just naked with my tattoos and, you know, walking around and Korean people are giving me dirty looks, which is hard to tell. It's hard to tell when a Korean is giving you a, a dirty look. You know. Comedian Margaret Cho in a recent stand-up special. Now, what what our listeners can't see, Professor Robinson, is that, as she's saying, it's hard to tell when a Korean is giving you a dirty look. She's making kind of a cartoon face. Who's allowed to do this today? And is this okay, especially in light of the hate rhetoric against that the Asian community is dealing with now? Oh, yeah. Margaret Cho with her facial expressions. I mean, she's absolutely um, well known for for making hilarious facial expressions and using her body in her comedy in all sorts of amazing ways. Um, In this case, you know, she's she's doing something she often does, which is kind of presenting herself as a double outsider. She's a Korean American, which kind of places her outside of the mainstream. But even there, she's like a she has uh, like an outsider identity in her own community where she's uh, also like a kind of uh, queer, loud talking, um, you know, woman who who wants to say and live her life in a kind of dramatic way. So I think the critique as she makes it, and sometimes it's to an Asian American audience, an insider audience who can really um, understand the way that the joke is intended. Um, I think that she's one of the comedians who does it and gets away with it. And I do think that there are other comedians who wouldn't get away with it, and there are other comedians who would never entertain the thought of even trying something like that, po- poking fun at a com- uh, at their own community, because it's too volatile, it's too dangerous. You, as a cultural historian, have put a lot of your scholarly energy into taking a deeper look at stand-up comedy. Overall, what is it doing now that other art forms perhaps aren't able to do as effectively? Stand-up comedy is doing a a lot of things today. One of them is getting our attention. All of the new media and social media we use, from TikTok to Instagram to YouTube, um, is allowing us to access this comedy in in form of entertainment in these small pieces. So it's becoming a part of our everyday life in the way that, say, film or dance or even, you know, some other forms of entertainment can't at this moment. And that is this edition of Coastline. Dr. Michelle Robinson, thank you so much for being with us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks also to Rob Holiday at the Friday Center at University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. Find the episode at whqr.org or wherever you get podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Coastline.